Hello again and good morning. My name is Luke Drake and I have the privilege of reading today's scriptures which come from John 15 and 16. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on an account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuses for their sins. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Great job, Luke. Well, that is one handsome kid right there. <laughs> He's so bright, I call him my son. Good job, Luke. Well, it's kind of good to be with you this morning. Worth just happened to be out of town for this passage. Jeff, uh, excuse me, David last week gets to talk about being a friend of God. I bet next week Jeff's going to talk about the love of God. And I get to talk to you about why you're going to be hated by the world. I think it's, <laughs> yeah, to top things off, my wife just pointed out I'm missing my wedding band and I have no idea where it is. So this is just a great morning. Just a great morning. Well... I do want you to know that uh, I'm just the mailman. I didn't write the text, I'm just delivering it to you. It might not be an easy message to hear, but it's God's truth and I believe he has something for you this morning. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, there's one in the pew in front of you if you don't, I'd like for you to just grab a hold of it right now. And I want you to lift it up over your heads. And I'd love for you to repeat after me. This is the word of God. I believe what it says. I'd submit myself to its authority. I am what it says I am. And I can do what it says I can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we go. I have the privilege of serving in the United States military as a chaplain. And I love serving in the military because, well, it's just been one of the greatest privileges and honors of my life. What the military is known for is its training. And it trains soldiers to fight and win our nation's war. Our trainings are to make sure we are ready. And when we are warned of an enemy, when we are warned about a deployment, 
We need to be ready to go. And so a lot of soldiers like myself have what we call a go bag. Everything I need is in that bag. I got my gear, my name tag, my helmet, my boots, my uniform, all ready. So that in a very short period of time, I can activate and do whatever it is I need to do to serve our country. I wanna talk to you today about the importance of being forewarned so you can be forearmed. And that's where we're gonna begin today. On March 27th, 2023, Audrey Hale, a transgender activist, went into the Covenant School, a PCA school, a sister school of our denomination in Nashville, Tennessee, and she took with her an assault rifle, a nine millimeter gun, and she opened fire 152 times. She killed nine souls that day, three children. Their names, Haley, Evelyn, and William, and three adults, Michael, Catherine, and Cynthia. An entire community went into shock, trying to make sense of this vicious hate act targeting Christians. Our nation is still struggling to find answers. And what only complicated, if not frustrated the matter, is that many people in our press mocked Christianity during this time. Quote, maybe they were not praying enough for protection end of quote, while sympathizing with the shooter, quote, who carried the pain of religious indoctrination into adulthood, end of quote. For the most part, though, these images of these nine souls, they brought unity and they strengthened the bonds within a community. And that's what a powerful image can do, a powerful image that captures hate. It stirs deep within our hearts and it reminds us that all is not well. All is not well. This is what Jesus is doing in this upper room with his disciples whom he loves and whom he's sharing his last meal with. He is painting a picture for them in the world that all is not well. And to be forewarned should help them to be forearmed. You see, leading up to this upper room dialogue, the disciples had been debating about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They had, they had ideas and notions of grandeur in their heart. But Jesus is grounding them in reality. And this is important because sometimes our expectations and reality are different. We begin our marriages, you know, with dreams of happy forever. And yet we find ourselves in an argument on our honeymoon. We start to pursue our dream career only to find that it's paved with a path of failure and difficulty and challenges. We want to start a family, but it begins with the pain of childbirth. Or we have dreams and ambitions of what we're going to do in retirement only to find that poor health limits us greatly. To be forewarned 
helps us to be forearmed because it grounds our expectations in reality. And this is where we find our text today with Jesus grounding our understanding in the reality that there will be trouble. You know, we shouldn't be surprised about this. Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, it starts with God creating. And after each day, God says, it is very good. And then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all hell breaks loose, literally. This is what the reformers called the proto-evangelium. The first time the gospel's preached in scriptures, right after sin has entered the scene. You see, the serpent who deceived Eve, why his head was going to be crushed by the seed of Eve, but he would bite the heel of the seed of Eve. The rest of scripture, you could call a footnote to this conflict. What happens in chapter four? Cain tries to destroy Abel. Later on down the road, Potiphar's wife tries to destroy Joseph. Pharaoh tries to destroy Moses. Goliath tries to destroy David. Jerusalem is almost destroyed by Babylon. Herod tries to destroy Jesus. And then the Bible ends with the depiction that it began with, where the great serpent, Satan himself, will be in an epic conflict with the seed of woman, the second Adam, Christ, who is everything the first Adam should have been. And therein lies the tension and the conflict that you and I feel and face every day, outside and even within our own hearts. And this is the context in which this upper room discourse is taking place. So we turn our attentions to John 15, verses 18 through 25, and multiple times we see here the word hate. The world's gonna hate you. The world's gonna hate you. They're gonna hate you on account of my name. They're gonna hate you without cause. When we read about this kind of hate in the United States, it can be hard for us to get our minds around because for some of us, that's not our experience. But the reality is, is that Jesus has called each and every one of us to live countercultural lives. To put him first means an, a complete reordering of everything. And let's not forget how Jesus lived his life. He broke down barriers between the social classes. He became very close with sinners. He invited women to be his followers. Many people just found Jesus strange. And many others found him just downright offensive. There will be a cost for following Jesus. We are not better than our master. We are called to be like him. And he said that we should expect to be treated like him. Historians record that's exactly what happened. Peter and Paul were both killed in Rome 30 years after Jesus was crucified. Andrew went into what is now known as Russia. And he was put to death there for his faith in Christ. Thomas went east to India, and their soldiers speared him to death. Simon the Zealot went to Persia, and he was killed when he refused to worship the sun god. In fact, 10 out of the 11 faithful disciples ended up being martyred 
John, the one disciple who did survive, only survived after being boiled in oil and exiled to the island of Patmos. But we see in the midst of all that tragedy, God can use that pain for good. That's where John penned his gospel. That's where he wrote his epistles. Something to think about. You know, we can see a pattern of persecution amongst followers of Christ, and yet Christ using that ultimately for his glory. Persecution amongst Christians, unfortunately, is still common today, and it's been carrying on since the Jews persecuted Jesus. Rome quickly picked up on that because Christians refused to call Caesar Lord, and they would not pledge their allegiance to any king but Jesus. Christians were considered narrow-minded because they'd only worship one God and not many gods. Christians refused to participate in the debauchery of Rome, and their very presence was a reminder of moral purity that the Romans despised. Christians were bad for the idol business too. For all these reasons and many more, they were simply a threat. They didn't try to fit in or blend in. They impacted culture and they influenced it for good. Politicians try to blame Christians for a lot of things. The plagues, the fires of Rome, economic disparity. In fact, by the time 64 AD rolls around, Nero is lighting Christians on fire on torches at his parties. They're being fed to lions to entertain Rome in the Colosseum. By the time we get to the fourth century, I'm not gonna mention the things that they were doing to Christian, but it went from bad to worse. Do you know conservatively 70 million Christians have been martyred for their faith? In fact, today, around the world today, 15 Christians are gonna die because of their faith in Jesus. On a more encouraging note, the church father Tertullian noted, and it still holds true today, that the blood of the martyr has always been the seed of the church. And where the persecution is strongest is where the gospel flourishes. You know, recently the Wall Street Journal did some coverage about one of their own, uh, American Evan Gruskoschevich. It was quite remarkable because this reporter was working in Russia when he was arrested and then imprisoned. He spent over 100 days now in prison, and the Wall Street Journal has been advocating for his immediate release. Their concern for their journalist is quite laudable. But at the same time, I want to remind us that there are hundreds, hundreds of Christians today that are in prison because of their faith. Christians like Pastor Wang Yi, of Chengdu, China. He was imprisoned because he dared to preach the gospel without the permission of the government. Hundreds of his congregation were imprisoned. His wife was on house arrest up until just last year. Today, Christians are still being persecuted because of their faith. And this is what we find in the text here in the fine print of the text, this is likely what it's going to look like to follow Jesus in our lives to some degree or another. You'll find preachers tell you that when you come to Christ, everything's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. But I'm not sure that's what the scriptures teach. In fact, when you look at the closest followers of Christ, things were not great. They weren't always good. 
but they would tell you it was worth it. Why is there so much hate towards Christians? Because the light has come into the world and the world loved darkness rather than the light. There will be times that you will experience persecution or hate and it's just without a cause. There's no good explanation for the irrational evil that you see or experience. Audrey, the shooter at the Covenant School, she was raised in a loving home by Christian parents who cared deeply for her. We will never understand why, and sometimes we will never understand why God allows evil to take place, but we will recognize evil and we can trust that he can use it for good and for his glory. And that one day he will come back and make all things right. Jesus said these words, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my recount. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. If you find yourself in the midst of persecution and hate because of your faith, know that you are in good company. In fact, you're not just in good company historically, you are in good company because the spirit of God is with you. Verse 26 and 27, the helper comes and he helps us bear witness to the truth. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes, he empowers us mightily. Think about the apostles, the followers of Christ, Peter, for example, a guy I really like because he often had his foot in his mouth. But he went out there and he did things and he didn't passively sit by, but he found himself in trouble sometimes. Here's a man who doesn't have a lot of education, certainly is not a master of words, no wordsmith. And yet he preaches a sermon following the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ when the whole thing should have been over, the movement should have ceased, and instead thousands of people respond to the gospel get baptized, and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His sermon begins to turn the very epicenter of where it looked like Christianity should end into its launching pad into the world. Why and how was this? Simply Peter was with Jesus and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And God spoke through him mightily. And guess what? He wants to do the same through you and me. So not when, excuse me, not if, but when you find yourself in the midst of persecution and trials, know that the Holy Spirit is with you. And he's gonna give you the strength and the courage and the wisdom that you need to take your stand. And he's not just gonna do that. I believe he's gonna bring peace in your heart and joy in your life in the midst of whatever trials you face. The Holy Spirit, the helper, is with us. Jesus concludes his discourse with verses one through four found in John 16. And again, he's 
forewarning the disciples of what's to come because he wants them to be prepared and forearmed. He loves them and he wants the best for them. And he doesn't want them to fall away. Unfortunately, the scripture tells us that many people will fall away. In fact, it says the love of most will grow cold and the path to life is narrow and few people find it. The broad is the gate and the easiest path that leads to destruction and many people are on it. I think Jesus is saying all these things because remember, he begins the discourse in love and he's ending it by warning them of hate. He begins the discourse by washing their feet. He's ending the discourse by washing their minds with his word and preparing for them to see things as they truly are. You may remember, you may remember. It's so important that we don't forget in the dark what we should have learned in the light. And that's what Christ is reminding his disciples of. Unfortunately, there is evil in this world and there will be people who think that by doing evil, they are actually doing good. This was Paul's story prior to his conversion. He persecuted the church and God got a hold of his life and he redeemed that passion in Paul's heart for redemptive purposes and constructive purposes. Uh, my family and I, we were traveling in New York recently and I took everybody to the 9-11 memorial and there we were confronted with evil in very disturbing ways, ways that I had forgotten 20 years ago when I was a college student and saw it happening before my very eyes. There are a lot of misguided people with misguided notions. And it's important that we see things as they are. Don't try and make sense of it. You'll never be able to. It's sin, it's evil, it's wicked. But what we know is that God is in control. He is on the throne and we can trust him. We can trust him. Ultimately, our battle is not against people's ideas and flesh. They're not our enemies. The scripture says, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And that's why it says they do not know the father because their father is the devil. The devil is our enemy. He is a spiritual enemy. And therefore our battle ultimately is a spiritual battle and it must be fought on our knees praying until we have the strength to stand. On a final note, our passage ends with that you may remember. Jesus wants us to be familiar with what has happened to better prepare us for what is coming. He is suggesting to his disciples that by grounding their thoughts and their heart in reality, that they will be better prepared to face it. And I believe that's always true. You know, I looked at D-Day and I was inspired because on June 6, 1944, 160,000 allied forces landed on the shores of Nazi occupied France. And there they held the high ground. And there our American troops in particular knew they were gonna meet head on the brute force and the strength of the German army at a great disadvantage to themselves. If that wasn't enough, they encountered unbelievable setbacks 
in the water with the tides and the currents and much of their technology to get them on shore did not work as they expected. But in spite of all this, in spite of all the odds, they overcame, they prevailed. And many historians believe that was the beginning of the end of the Nazi party. How did these men face this fear, this, this fear they had and, and the sheer hatred that was pointed at them? Well, it didn't hurt that General Dwight D. Eisenhower wrote these words to his men prior to them setting off. Men, your task is not an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. And let us all beseech the blessings of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. To be forewarned helped these soldiers be forearmed. And the same is true for us. But how can we, practically speaking, how can we practically be forearmed? What are we to do with this information that Christ has given to believers for all of time? Well, let me share with you how one family is coping with evil and hate from the Covenant School shooting. Behind me on the wall is a picture of Pastor Scruggs, pictured with his beautiful family. His only daughter, unfortunately, was one of the victims, Evelyn, in that shooting. He took a sabbatical, as you can imagine, from the ministry to comfort his family during this unimaginable loss. And he's not over it yet. But he did step back into the pulpit a few weeks ago. And here's what he said to his congregation. It has been a struggle for my wife and three sons to move on from this tragedy. We aren't soaring on wings like eagles. We aren't running without being weary. We're simply trying to walk without fainting. He went on to say to his congregation, we loved you before March 27th. And we love you now more because of how you have loved us. I don't know why God allows evil and hatred to exist, but I do know that in the face of evil and hatred, love will always prevail. The antidote to hate is love. And it is not an ethereal love, but one that lived and died for those that he loved. In a world filled with hate, as the body of Christ, we must love one another. Hebrews 12 reminds us, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, considered him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. The cross is Jesus' faithfulness in the face of hate. Jesus never avoided uncomfortable places. He never avoided people who hated him. He never tried to fit in. He was among sinners, but he never stooped to sin. 
And he kept loving the very people that rejected him. And as he loved, so we Christians are called to love, even in the midst of persecution and hate. So now you've been forewarned. But practically, what does it look like to be forearmed? Well, here's some things that I was talking about with my wife and Worth that helped me ground this reality to hopefully some hopeful steps for you. I don't expect you to do all of them, but maybe, maybe there's one thing that you can do this week. Number one, we are to live at peace with everyone so far as it depends upon us. And yet at the same time, we're to keep the faith. Now, this is not easy to do. It is a fine line to walk. But we need to be aware that some people are gonna find Jesus offensive. And being like him and following him, they're not gonna like us either. You may be called a bigot, a misogynist, intolerant, phobic, or just straight up get canceled for the truth. Young person, you might be called a prude or goody-goody for having moral standards and purity standards that your peers don't share in the way you act or the way you dress. To those of you in healthcare, you might lose your job because you refuse to do something that you find is in direct violation to your Christian conscience. Parents, the very schools that we are entrusting our children to, they might not want you involved or a part of your child's education. To be forearmed for these challenges and for all the other many challenges that you face, you must and I must stand upon the authoritative word of God. It is our final authority. It is our compass, our true north. And we must stand on it and we must build our lives on it for it alone has stood the test of time. Number two, Christ is going to call some of us to some very difficult places. There are literally missionaries all around the world, places like Egypt, Turkey, Ukraine, uh, even China and Sudan. And I'm so grateful for those missionaries that are preaching the gospel there at great cost to themselves. But here's the reality. God has called you and I, wherever we are, to serve him faithfully there. Your work, your home, your community, your school, this is where God has called you. And you're going to have to count the cost because you can't blend in. You've been called to make a difference and shine bright for our Lord. So preach the gospel at all times with your words and with your actions. The best way to confront evil is with good. Number three, we're to pray. Boy, we're to pray. We're to pray for our leaders. I'm embarrassed to say that I was asked uh, who some of our leaders were on the city council at our Congress and Senate and even at the White House, and I didn't know their names. You know why I don't know their names? Because I haven't been praying for them. In large part, I've just been frustrated by them. But I haven't been praying for them. You know who else we're to pray for? We're to pray for those who are being persecuted and being mistreated. You know, Voice of the Martyrs is a wonderful web source, a website and magazine that helps Christians understand what's going on around the world and how people are being persecuted and how we can respond to help them. You know, uh, what's interesting is the Wall Street Journal said that um, uh, their journalist is actually receiving letters from his family and it's encouraging him a great deal. I do wonder 
if our prayers and maybe even our letters could encourage others who find themselves locked up and persecuted. Something to think about. Number four, forgive the military terminology, but life is gonna suck sometimes. And you gotta just embrace the suck. We live in a fallen world, people. But in the midst of all the hardships and trials that you face, they are going to refine you and purify you and strengthen you. And God's gonna use whatever it is you're going through. If you're going through hell, you gotta keep on going and God's gonna use it. He's gonna use it for your good and his glory. So you trust him, you trust him. As Christians, we have been called to be example citizens, to pay our taxes, to obey the law, to defend the vulnerable and live with integrity. We are to have virtuous lives that are quiet and not boastful and loud. The Bible says that things are gonna get worse and worse, but we're not called to quit or to back down. We must count the cost and stand for what is good, what is right, what is true and what is pure. Historically, this is what Christians have done. They've built hospitals and orphanages and humanitarian organizations and educational institutions and so many policies with women's suffrage and human rights and civil rights were all founded on the very ideas and principles that Jesus taught. Continuing this good work will not be easy or cheap or convenient, but Christ is worthy of our all. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe that he can use us to continue to build his kingdom here on earth. Last but not least is number five, we need to engage culturally effectively. We haven't been called to make a point, we've been called to make a difference. I know that can be challenging because we're facing a lot of complex situations right now. And I believe that the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom and I believe that God's word will guide us. But I also find that there's been great help to me in my journey in life by seeking the godly and wise counsel of other Christians. And so I'm excited about an opportunity coming up. Uh, a gentleman named Eric Metaxas is coming to Miami on September 7th. There's gonna be a dinner at the Rusty Pelican of which you are all invited to. And there Christians are going to begin to engage in meaningful conversation about how best to deal with some of the complexities we are facing all around us. You see, Eric Metaxas did a New York best-selling biography on a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who was around when Hitler was rising to power in the 1930s and 40s. Do you know that out of three, excuse me, 18,000 churches in Germany, 3,000 were pro-Nazi, 3,000 were anti-Nazi, 12,000 were silent. Here's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer before he was martyred by the Nazis in a concentration camp. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. I hope that you'll join me and others as we wrestle with what it means to honor the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives and bring his light and his truth to a world that desperately needs it. Well, I've given you a lot to think about today. 
You've been forewarned, now it's time to be forearmed. So I gave you five things that you could do. I want you, I'm gonna give you just a minute here because life, once you leave church, it's gonna get busy and hectic and crazy. And so I'm gonna give you a minute just to sit there and either pray or think about what God might be calling you to do because it's time to pack up because in just a minute, you're headed out those doors and back into the world. So take this minute right now just to think, reflect, and pray. I got an unexpected call back in April. I was in Nicaragua on a medical mission trip and I was about to speak to a group of students and residents and physicians. I didn't get good service down there and I wasn't planning on answering the call, but I'm so glad I did. It was a call from a good friend of mine in Birmingham, Alabama, Daniel Dillon. He owns a big construction company there and. He's a hunter and a strong and a mighty man, a man that many people follow. He was in tears and he was definitely deeply disturbed. You see, he had just left the funeral of his cousin, Cindy. Cindy was known in the media as Cynthia. She was one of the people shot at the Covenant School. She was a substitute teacher. She usually didn't go to that school, but that day she went and she substituted. And there, before children, she barely knew. She put her life in harm's way to protect them. And she gave her life for them. He said Cindy was a mighty force for good. She was a woman who loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And like all good Southern women, she talked slow, but she thought fast. And you knew exactly where she stood. When her three children took the stage, they shared about Christ and how he had worked in their mom's life and in their family's life. They talked about forgiveness and redemption. Daniel told me there wasn't a breath of hatred or anger at that funeral. He said it wasn't really like a funeral at all. It was a three-hour praise service. What I want you to hear today 
is that Christ can take whatever evil you and I face and use it for your and my good and ultimately his glory. He is with us, he is for us, and he will sustain us through it all. You have been forewarned. Now it's time that you're forearmed. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, you've forewarned us that there will be trouble. We look to you, the author and sustainer of life, that you will give us the strength we need to honor you to the end. Lord, we know that there's much evil in this world. Help us to confront it with good. And I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.